turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verse 7. We look forward next week to having Joseph White with us again. Uh, I think he's going to be coming in on Saturday um, and uh, trying to set up another time to, to meet with folks, and he'll be bringing the message to us next Sunday. And if I'm not mistaken, that Monday might be, is that Memorial Day? I love these sneak holidays that I don't <laughs> remember. But then, hey, don't have to go to work. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 7, reading through verse 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians chapter 5, 7 through 14. So if we recall from the last couple of weeks, this chapter of Ephesians opens by telling us the very formidable task, the call to be imitators of God. And the chapter continues by specific behaviors that Paul mentions, behaviors that are accompanied by motivations for those behaviors. I think it's good to see that God is gracious to not only tell us what imitators of God look like, but also to give us motivators. If you're a parent and you have children, you understand how sometimes it is very unsatisfactory to tell them what to do without telling them why, although you have the right to do that as a parent. But sometimes you may get it's part of growing up. You may get agreement. You may get understanding in, in your, your children as you do give them motivations of, or understanding of why things need to happen. So we saw last week behaviors in this chapter like sexual sin that Paul says, put this away, put away impurity, put away covetousness. He says, put on Thanksgiving, but put away filthiness, coarse talk, and crude joking. And he couples this with two motivations from last week, very very intimidating, imposing motivations, uh, those who participate in these behaviors will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. The wrath of God comes upon those sons of disobedience. So last week, it was kind of a future motivation. This is going to happen if you participate in these behaviors. He's going to help us now by looking at motivations for behavior that are based on our past and our present. Now, remember, I want to say this frequently as we go through chapters like this. This is not a list of behaviors that we are to do in order to have new life. These are not things we do in order to walk in love, but instead these are behaviors that characterize new life people. These are behaviors that characterize imitators of God who walk in love. So my main message for you today and the conclusion that we're going to land on, how we live has an effect on unbelievers. How we live has an effect on unbelievers. So let's see how Paul takes us to that conclusion. So the first point is that our identity is to live as light. Paul issues a strong call for the Ephesians and also for us to consider that what we once were 
is no longer what we are, to realize what we now are. We once were in darkness, but now we are light. And therefore, we should live and walk as children of light. Verses 7 through 9 uh, is very clear. He says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. This theme of darkness and light is, is universal, easily understood, timeless. Um, you know, we, we sing songs, this little light of mine, uh, let your light shine down on me. Even in movies, we know um, the, the good side of the force is not the dark side. I mean, there's, there's light and there's dark. Um, Paul strengthens his call by dramatically calling attention to our actual state. He, he's not just saying you were people living in darkness. You were people living in evil circumstances. He's saying you were darkness and you are now light. It's, it's a little bit stronger than just saying you were with a bad crowd. He's like, you were evil and now you are light. In darkness, we were clueless. We were blind. We were misled. Uh, those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia all the way through to the last book, the last book is called The Last Battle. If you remember, there was this um, fake Aslan, this, this donkey that was dressed up in a lion's skin. And th- there was a, a battle. There, were, uh, there was like the evil side and those who believed in Aslan. And at the end of that, the, the dwarves who had sided with the fake Aslan I hope this is not going too deep. People read the first three books, but not so much the, the sixth. But the dwarves who refused to see the beauty in Aslan's kingdom. Remember, the dwarves are for the dwarves. We're not going to be taken in by anybody. We're looking out for ourselves. Those dwarves, even after being told the truth, even after being handed, I remember the scene, being handed a great, bountiful, delicious food, they're like, oh, man, they're trying to feed us slop. They were blinded. And Aslan said about those dwarves, he said, their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison. And they're so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. That's blindness, not even seeing the goodness that God has before you. But in darkness, we were that deceived. We were that misled. We were that right in our own eyes, thinking that we knew what was best. In darkness, we worked the deeds of evil. What were the deeds of evil? We'll keep referring back to them. Ephesians chapter 4, the previous chapter, where we talked about speaking falsehood. Where we spoke about being angry, stealing, corrupt talk. These are the deeds of evil that we worked when we were darkness. But in light, there is truth, there is clarity, and there is purity. Now truly, this is a dramatic moral transformation that we cannot undertake for ourselves. This is a dramatic transformation from being darkness to being light. Don't you find that one of the blessings of salvation, one of the blessings that God gives us is that every time we look at the work of salvation in our lives, it expands a little bit more. There's maybe a different facet. And as I talked about before, you know, coming up here and, and singing it as well, we know intellectually what God has done for us, but sometimes we forget. I guess that's part of being flawed humans. Sometimes we forget, and we have to be reminded. And when we look at salvation, this concept that it just kind of expands, I'm reminded again how big it is that God didn't just remove the guilt of sin, but He also declared us righteous. He could have just removed 
the guilt of sin without justifying us and declaring us righteous. God freely forgives our sins. But he doesn't just leave us at that point where we just want to keep on continuing to commit sin. He forgives us of those sins and then he transforms us to desire what he wants for us. Sin is no longer the center of our existence when we are light. Sin is no longer the enslaving power when we are light. Sin no longer defines us when we are children of light. This is a common thread throughout Scripture. Um, this, this, this concept of our biblical identities. Our biblical identities. Knowing who you are and living in that truth. Uh, I have just three examples of biblical identity that we've had preached here throughout the years. One, so I'll hit these verses quickly. You can jot them down. But the first biblical identity that we've heard of and, and we should be reminded of uh, is our identity by adoption as sons and daughters of God. That we are no longer orphans. We are no longer slaves who are outside of the household of God, but we are adopted into the family. Ephesians chapter 1, 4 and 5 even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the power of His will. In Galatians chapter 4, 6-7, through 7, Galatians 4, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God, Galatians 4, 6 through 7. It's important living in, in the identity as adopted sons does not mean that we forget what we came from. But we don't live in that harsh past. We live as sons, as privileged heirs to the family of God. Our identity, number two, is also as people who once were dead. People who once were dead but now are raised up. Colossians chapter 3, if you flip over to there and, and maybe jot this down as a passage to read this week. Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, what are you supposed to do? Uh, he reminds us in verse 3, for you have died. In verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And it culminates in verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 3, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, your new identity, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And back to our familiar book of Ephesians chapter 2, you know, this passage, I remember preaching these verses, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And it lands on verse number four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, made us alive together. You were dead, people, but don't live in that identity because you are now alive. And a third example identity, our identity as God's people. First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten. Those of you who are sword drill experts can keep up. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, or with your iPad, you can flip over there. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, listen to this, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now 
you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This concept of what you once were and what you are now, what I once was and what I am now, that's to drive my identity. That's to drive who I am each day. We are to live as light because we are light. We are to forsake darkness because we are no longer darkness. So that's kind of a, an intellectual concept that we need to, to nail down as a foundation of how we get to this point where our behavior, our walk as light, as children of light, affects unbelievers. So what does this look like, though, practically? You, know, I'm, you can say, okay, Tim, I got it. I'm light. I used to be darkness. I'm light now. What does this look like in the life of a child of light? What does this look like for those who are no longer in darkness but now are light? So number two, the fruit of living as light. What is the fruit of living as light? I kind of want to do a big old parenthesis right here, a word of explanation, kind of a preemptive explanation. You might be asking, um, and if you don't, I'll ask it for you. Are we being sent on a fool's errand? Is this an impossible task when Paul says to walk as children of light? Although we are truly, we are indeed light and we are indeed no longer in darkness. We are not yet perfect. We still do some of the things in Ephesians 4, don't we? If we look at the fruit bearing metaphor in this passage in verse 9, Uh, of bearing fruit of light our passage today we don't always bear 100 percent yield prime perfect fruit there's still rotten fruit coming off of us and and paul goes on to say kind of raise the stakes even more beyond the must-have fruit of goodness righteousness and truth we're also to try to discern what is pleasing to the lord is this realistic for flawed fruit trees Is this realistic for people who are still living on this earth, who are flawed and still have sin in our lives? Or is this just a frustrating journey that we have ahead of us? We often talk about the kingdom theology concept of already but not yet. Yes, we believe that the kingdom of God is already here. And we believe that Christ is already ruling from heaven. But yet we know there is still sickness, there is still sin, there is still pain, there's still heartache and strife, there's disharmony. We know the full benefits of the kingdom have not yet been ushered in. But to live in our identities as children of light, this is our call. I would ask you to consider this is not a cruel assignment of a task by an uncaring God. Instead, it's a recognition of the divinely ordained tension that God has placed us in. He's placed us in this tension of already but not yet for his glory and for his pleasure and for our good. Due to our unity in Christ, let me flesh this out a little more. Due to our unity in Christ, we have divine identities. I talked about some of those. God views us as sons, not slaves. God views us as saints that have hope, not sinners who live in condemnation. But there is a gap. There is a gap between our position and our practice. And therein lies the tension of sanctification and the pursuit of holiness. So you see, we are positionally holy. Positionally holy 
because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We call this justification. When God um, legally states that we are righteous before him because he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. But we all know, even though we're positionally holy, we still sin. We still fail. And yet God still calls us to pursue holiness. As we read in 1 Peter 2, we're supposed to live as God's people. And what's he say there? He says you're to live as a holy people. We're called to close this gap between positional holiness and our practical holiness. And here is the hope. We can be assured. We can be assured of progress in dealing with specific sins in our lives. God is not calling us to holiness as part of some cruel joke. Uh, those of you who have an older brother or an older sister, you may be familiar with the always fun game of, hey, jump and try to reach this. And you know, your taller sibling constantly pulling it out of your reach. That, that doesn't happen in your home, right? Not anymore. Um, you guys know it's, a, it's, a, it's fun for the person who's bigger, not so fun for the younger one. Um, yeah, I, I won't share more from my childhood. But God is not constantly moving the standard and a leap, but you can't reach it sort of prank. He calls us to holiness because of his love for us. And he wants us to become more like his son, as I said, for his glory for his pleasure and for our good. So it is a realistic calling that he calls us to. This this bearing of fruit in verse 9. The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Good, right, and true. It sounds kind of like um, in Micah 6.8 in a song we sing. I forget the title. But he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Here, the fruit of light. First of all, goodness. Goodness denotes a spirit of generosity, a desire to bless others. Goodness is the opposite of malice. Goodness is not selfish, not self-centered. Righteousness is an even stronger word. It's a word that connotes even more of a divine standard for what is right. Righteousness says you need to do what is right in the eyes of God, not just what's right in your own eyes. Truth is living with integrity, living with consistency, not only externally, not only that what we say and what we do match, but also that our attitudes, our heart motives, heart motives match what we do and what we say. This metaphor of fruit is very appropriate. Preachers for centuries have used this. It's in the Bible. The fruit, it's very appropriate because it comes, a, a fruit tree cannot bear fruit that is not from within itself. Preachers for centuries have worded it better than I just did. But fruit, apple, the fruit of apple comes from an apple tree. Pineapple is a bush. If you didn't know, it's not from a tree. Uh, pineapple does not grow on a raspberry bush. The fruit of life lived as light comes from within, comes from God-empowered, supernatural quickening from within. And it is good, it is right, and it is true. But look on in verse 10 of our passage where Paul says, try to discern, try to discern what is pleasing to God. In other words, live as light for God's pleasure. 
the, the word discern means to test, to examine, to determine whether it is genuine. And so children of light, such as those of us who have been saved, are to determine whether the fruit of our lives bring God pleasure. Uh, Tim Challies, uh, an evangelical writer, says, Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. This is a responsibility for all Christians to do. We should seek God's mind on a matter. We should filter our actions and our attitudes with whether they are pleasing to God. Philippians 1.10 says, So that you may approve. It's the same word, approve, same as discern. So you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Hebrews 5.14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do we do this? The word try, I have to say, is a little bit intimidating. It's not a verse, but he's a wise man. Yoda said, do or do not. There is no try. But here, Yoda is a little bit wrong. See, it's not the word "try" is not there because like you're never gonna, again, the, the, the you're never gonna reach it. You're never gonna be able to determine what's pleasing to me. But I'll enjoy watching you struggle. We don't serve a cruel God. We don't have a cruel Father. So it's not about a constantly changing changing target. It's not about um, I'm not gonna tell you what pleases me. Try to figure it out, and I'll be amused by your attempts. To know what is pleasing to the Lord requires knowing the Lord personally and intimately. In the previous chapter, remember in the middle of one of Paul's long discourses, he said, we, that is not how you learned Christ. That is not how you learned Christ. It's, it's an interesting turn of phrase. We don't say, um, uh, Chris, have you learned Karen yet? I mean, in the South, learning is something that I'm going to learn you. That's, that's not right. <laughs> But um, we, when we're in a relationship, guys, aren't we constantly learning some things new about our spouses? Don't those things change constantly? No, that's, that's a feeble attempt at an ill-fated joke. But to learn Christ is what Paul said. To learn Christ, to know Him more, that's how you determine what is pleasing to God. We please God when we bring Him glory. He gifted us specifically, consider this, He gifted us specifically to bring Him glory. If you're of a certain age, in your 40s, you remember the movie Chariots of Fire, or older. I won't hum the theme because it'll stick in your head. But you remember this is a movie about uh, Olympic runners back in the 19-somethings. And there was an Olympic runner, a Scottish man named Eric Liddell. He turned out to be a Scottish missionary to China. And he, there's a quote from the movie where he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. There are things that we've been gifted with. There's a purpose for our being saved that God has given to us, that he's bestowed on us, that he has deployed us in a way to give him pleasure. 
Look to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to keep on fleshing out what this try means. How do we know what is pleasing to God? Romans chapter 12. Please turn there unless you can quote the first two verses, in which case I'll have you stand and quote. No, I won't. But Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I don't even think I could quote it from the ESV because I learned it in the authorized version. But Romans 12, 1 and 2. Look to that. Let those words soak in and see how they impact this call to try to discern what is pleasing to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You see the key? Discernment comes from being transformed. Discernment comes from being transformed. Our own empowered, our own human discernment does not cause us to be transformed. We're not transforming ourselves because we're so wise and discerning. Our transformation by God's Spirit gives us the discernment to know further what pleases God. So this is not a do or do not, there is no try. This is a try, and as you know me more, you're going to know what pleases me more. And I'm going to keep transforming your life so that you'll know even more what pleases me. Hebrews says that we are to practice to be discerning. So there is the try. There is trying. There is failing. And there will be the doing. The more we know God, the more we will know what pleases Him. Just this weekend, uh, relaxing a little bit, um, uh, Kendall and I are watching, it's not an ancient TV series, it was just seven years ago or eight years ago, but Lost. And uh, I, I realized I, I missed some of the early episodes. But just this weekend, I saw there was an example of a moth in a cocoon. If any of you remember this, you, you waste too much time watching TV. But there's a moth in a cocoon, and one of the characters says that there's a hole in that cocoon, and that moth is about to come out. And I can take this knife, and I can open that hole a little bit more and let the moth out and help him along. But that moth, if he comes out now, if I help him, he'll die. He's too weak to survive. Because in the striving, in the struggle to get out of the cocoon, Strength is being built up in that moth, in that butterfly. And I think it's it just kind of, yeah, maybe I was working on the message and watching TV afterwards and seeing, oh, hey, there's an illustration. But to me, there is an illustration. In the striving, there is joy. And in the striving, there is strength being built. And in the getting to know God more, we're practicing our discernment. We're understanding more what pleases God. So it's not just a matter of being handed a list of things to do. These please God. And we're like, all right, in my own power, I have to follow this list. In my own power, I don't want to do these things. They don't interest me, but I'm going to have to do them in order to please God. No, it's in knowing God and seeing him more and seeing what he has done for us. And all these things we've talked about of as we know God more, we become even more grateful. And grateful is a weak word. We become even more awed by what he has done for us. That we remember 
that which we have forgotten. Yes, God did save me. Yes, I am no longer in condemnation. Yes, he has forgiven me. And so this broken relationship that I have where I can't forgive somebody, I'm reminded that God's goodness and his mercy given to me, how wonderful that was. And he calls me to forgive because I've been forgiven. So in the struggle is not discouragement. There is strength being built. As children of a loving father, as children of light, we are to bear fruit of righteousness, goodness, and truth. And we are able to bear this fruit because we are to be transformed by our growing intimate relationship with our Father, which renews our mind and helps us to strengthen our ability to discern the will of God. So again, our theme, how we live as children of light has an effect on unbelievers who are in darkness. So the final question, what effect do we have by living as light? What happens when we let the light do what light does? Third point, the effects of living as light. This, um, take this from verse 11 and verse 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Now remember, chapter 4 gives us just the beginning of a list of unfruitful works of darkness. I won't go and classify that which is works of darkness and that which is light. I think God has already given us some discernment on what works of darkness are. But we remember the theme of put off darkness and then put on light, and it continues here. The, the clear message, perhaps the clear nuance here, is to take no part. Do not be partners in the actions. And I also note the focus is not on the people. The focus is on the actions. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But we, we need to sit here for a moment and think. This call goes beyond take no part. Take no part allows me to isolate myself from those works and isolate myself from those people. But look what verse 10, uh, verse uh, 11 continues to say. Take no part in those works, but instead expose them. What does this mean? What does it mean to expose these works of darkness? What it does not mean is do not expose darkness by participating in those dark works. Sometimes evangelicals, rightfully guilty of this criticism, we can embrace dark fruits with the noble effort of trying to reach people. We can say in order to reach the alcoholic, I must be drunk. In order to um, understand the depravity of sin, I must participate in that. Be very, very cautious. Understand that we have deceitful hearts. Understand that we will, we still find pleasure in sin, do we not? We are, we are being transformed, but we are not yet fully transformed. And so we need to be cautious in that. And that's why, I mean, in order to take that approach of participating in works of darkness, in order to reach someone, you have to ignore the first part of this verse, take no part. So what it does not mean is to expose darkness by participating. What it also does not mean is to expose dark works by berating the people or hating them. Westboro Baptist in our country, in, in, uh, I believe they're in, in Wichita, and they're an example, a national example of Christians, self-proclaimed Christians who have hate, who expose darkness but have no love. 
I would extend that for our time even to expose dark. This does not mean to expose dark works by blogging about them. This is why the Pregnancy Resource Center is so much more Christ-like in their approach than picketing or protesting. To provide some hope. To provide a way to help people rather than just to say, you're committing murder and God's going to judge you. Period. This is why the work of the PRC is something that we support. But what does it mean to expose works of darkness? And here's the thing for you to consider. We are to expose works of darkness by living as light. By living as light. Paul's message in verse 2, or Paul's message here in in verse number 12, seems to de-emphasize the verbal confrontation. He says it's shameful even to speak of those things that are done in secret. Now note, the rest of Scripture does call us to speak the truth in love. I mean, even in this book of Ephesians, we're called to speak the truth in love. So this is not to say never call out sin, never call sin, sin, uh, and, and by our silence to possibly endorse it. But here, Paul is saying to expose, but not even to speak on it. The reason and purpose for our motivation to live as children of light is to expose works of darkness. And we'll see in a moment as we conclude what the outcome is. But just for now, recognize that just like flame, just like a lantern, just like a candle, light always has an effect on the surrounding location, the people around that light. The place, the actions, living for God's glory and for God's pleasure as children of light will mean that you will do some things that the rest of the world is not doing. Living as children of light will mean that you will not do some things that everyone else is doing. And there's a sobering thought. If you were to die this week, would there be anyone in your social circle Anyone that you work with that would be surprised that you would have a Christian funeral? I didn't know he was a Christian. This is not a noble status to be attained, to be stealth Christian. We are to live as light. Light is distinctive. We are, if we are surrounded by unbelievers, we are to live in such a way. I mean, it's not even to live in an unusual way. Christians are light, and light in darkness is going to stand out. There's no way to hide it. So consider that. Do you live in such a way that your light life exposes darkness and affects the surrounding people? And what does this look like? You will be distinct in living as light, and your distinctness distinctness will expose sin in those around you. Some will fight you. Some will hate being exposed. And as Paul says, such were some of us. Some will be brought to God by having light shown on their works. We'll see in verse 13 and 14. In, in this effect of having light change us just by shining, not by words, but just by shining, haven't you ever even seen that among Christians? Have you ever been around another Christian and heard them talk about their vibrant, intimate relationship with God? And you've had your own darkness, whether it's a temporary darkness or not, having your own strained relationship with God illuminated 
Maybe that person that you're with who's sharing how God has taught them isn't even saying, hey, Tim, um, how are things with you? Just, but instead, just by sharing what God has done for them, I can leave that and say, God, I want that again. And I know you have that for me. My darkness, my slide into darkness can be illuminated just by being next to a person who's living as light. And so there's, there's a message here both for living as light among Christians and also living as light among non-Christians. It doesn't even take words. Sometimes the light of right living brings conviction and repentance. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here. Now, what can this look like here at Grace and Truth Bible Church? What can this look like here at Grace and Truth? A, a couple of, of in-the-moment applications. Now, I read a... Uh, you guys know I, I get input, illustrations, things in my mind from, from blogs that I read. I hope I don't read too many, but... There was a blog written by a pastor named Stephen Altrogi, and it was entitled, Nothing Should Be Taboo. Nothing Should Be Taboo in Our Churches. Nothing Should Be Taboo in Our Churches. You see, there are certain things that if someone, consider if someone came to confess to you that they had an eating disorder, or that they were cutting themselves, or as, as we talked about last week, that they were in sexual sin, or they were dealing with depression, if someone confesses that to you, sometimes we feel awkward about these things because we don't want to talk about them. They make us uncomfortable. And when we are uncomfortable, we should admit, when, when it's something awkward, I'm not going to go out of my way to bring that up again, to address it. Sometimes we don't minister to each other when it's an uncomfortable topic. And this pastor was encouraging churches like ours, Christians like us, to not be shocked by struggles. I mean, we expect people to be afflicted with disease, do we not? We expect people and ourselves to have sin in our lives. But just like we would expect someone to struggle with pride, we should not be surprised if someone struggles with anorexia. Just because someone says, pray for me, I'm afflicted by migraines, it's no more awkward for someone to say, I'm afflicted by depression. I do believe there's a physical aspect to that. Same with awkward topics like same-sex attraction here in our church should not be a taboo subject. It should be something brought for prayer and counseling and love. There are sins that we may consider to be acceptable to talk about. But we should not have things that are taboo. We should be wise in that. I mean, open transparency with someone who is not Mature and wise is not helpful. It, it can easily feed someone who struggles with the sin of gossip. But let us be a church body where it's okay to be broken. As I said opening this, it's okay to come here and not be able to sing. Of course, we who participate in the music on, on the platform, we like it when people sing. We like it when our voices are blended with yours. But if God's working in your heart or if the circumstances of your life are causing you to be clouded and not remember what God has done. Bring that. This is where it should be brought to God, to God's people, shared with God's people so that they can come alongside, so that the Spirit can encourage. We should have relationships that shine light on each other lovingly so that works of darkness are evident and open and jointly lovingly addressed. 
Confession may be awkward, but God gives grace. If you are confessed to, and it's something you're awkward, you feel awkward with, be prayerful and be gracious to that person and encouraging. Be scriptural in your response. Be supportive. Remind that person of God's promises and our hope. Recognize that sin remains in every one of us. Chris talked about that last week. Specifically, that sexual sin is in every one of us. Sin in general remains in all of us. But God is bigger than that sin. Another passage to read this week would be Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, where it just kind of talks about that first Adam and Jesus and how grace and forgiveness and God's goodness is so much bigger than the power of sin. I do have another sobering application. I'll, I'll try not to dwell too long on it, but I think there's a lesson for us here. Um, a sobering example of um, what is going on right now in an, a ministry that we are very familiar with, Sovereign Grace Ministries, based out of Maryland. Um, there, this, this is a, a ministry that has had a great beneficial effect on this ministry. Um, I remember... Uh, their music, we use much of their music. I remember the book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, having the opportunity to stumble across that book providentially and being able to teach that in Sunday school um, back at, at Heritage and having that kind of change the way I viewed the gospel. But there is, there are an alarming number of allegations of abuse, systemic abuse of children and covering of that abuse at churches within that movement. They are allegations. They, they are... So, sobering is such an understatement. I don't want to go in, into too much detail, but the point is that no sin in any venue of life, especially not in the church, should be hidden or covered up. If we fail to live as light, we fail to accomplish God's purpose in our lives. And some of the, 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 the sobering thing about Sovereign Grace and Covenant Life Church and um, these ministries that are now going through the civil suit of, of children who were abused in Sunday school, who were abused at home groups, where the abusers were then confronted and then put right back into ministry. Some abused children, then abused others, and it was covered up. For what reason? I don't know. For the sake of the ministry? But perhaps. But, but the, the, the problem is that a church culture that hides sin leads to abuse and depravity. We saw it at Penn State, right? There was a report it to your direct supervisor, but then not to the authorities. Church ministry is not more important than truth, especially in regards to the protection of our children. Our church policy, Josh and I were talking beforehand, we're not, we're not sure, I think it's written somewhere on our insurance forms, but let me be very, very clear on this day in 2013 what our church policy is regarding suspicion of the abuse of children. If you are a teacher here, someone who works with kids and you suspect any abuse, you are to report that to the authorities first, please, and then to the elders, okay? We're not going to stand, we're not going to allow ourselves to stand in the way of possibly trying to gather more information 
Um, Al Mohler, who many of you know and have read, he's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. And let me read quickly what he has said when they evaluated their seminary. The moral and legal responsibility of every Christian must be to report any suspicion of the abuse of a child to law enforcement authorities. Christians are sometimes reluctant to do this, but this reluctance is both deadly and wrong. Sometimes Christians are reluctant to report abuse because they do not feel that they know enough about the situation. They are afraid of making a false accusation. This is the wrong instinct. We do not have the ability to conduct the kind of investigation that is needed, nor is this assigned to the church. Romans 13 says this is the function of government as instituted by God. Waiting for further information allows a predator to continue and puts children at risk. This is itself an immoral act that needs to be seen for what it is. I don't know why God put this on my heart. and I, I, It's not exactly falling out of the passage, but this was an application that just God laid on my heart. That in all of our lives, not only one-on-one, but as a church, we cannot, for the sake of children, but also for the sake of the gospel, we cannot be a, a church that values our church culture more than it does the exposing of sin. Living as light will expose sin. And the beautiful, wonderful, gospel-powered outcome is that a church culture that exposes darkness leads to repentance, true repentance. Not just repentance to the point where a predator could then go after another child, but true repentance and reconciliation. There are always consequences to sin, though. The uh, attorney, her name is Susan Burke, who is representing these seven or eight individuals that were allegedly abused. Um, In an interview recently, she said, our hope is that the lawsuit and speaking out begin to shine a light, interesting words, begin to shine a light on what is really going on. And as with many forms of wrongdoing, shining a light is the best way to make it stop. Very interesting. I'm not sure she's a believer, but shining a light is what God ordains to expose sin and stop it. So in conclusion, the simplicity of this message that we live our lives in such a way that it has an effect on unbelievers. But what is the simplicity of, of how that works? We are to do for others what was done for us. Look at verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. These are intriguing verses, somewhat confusing. The the commentaries are all over the place on that, but I believe there is an illustrative point here. Number one, anything exposed by light becomes visible. And number two, when it becomes visible, it is light. That's the logical progression here. That doesn't really make sense physics-wise. Anything that is exposed is light. What Paul, I believe, is saying here, he's bringing our motivation to a conclusion. Live as light because you will have an effect on those around you. But the light of your life, the light of your life, that's light that's reflected from your life, from the Son of God, from the Son of Light, the divine light of our God, the light reflected off our lives will expose sin. And those who are exposed will be transformed just as we were. You see, think about it. Think back to when you became a Christian. 
I would venture to say every Christian in here, with no exception, became a Christian because you realized the depth of your sin and your need, your utter defenseless need of a Savior. The reason I know that every Christian in here had to come to that point, because that's the definition of repentance, is understanding the depth of our sin. Without this realization, there is no salvation. So someone shone light into your life and exposed sin. It may have been a teacher. It may have been just God working circumstances in your life and bringing you to the utter end of yourself. But someone shone light in your life and exposed sin. And when you became aware of that and God God put in your heart the desire to be right with him, you were transformed. And I think that's what this confusing yet eloquent verse is saying. When, when, things, when light is shown on, it becomes visible. When it becomes visible, it is light. Someone shown light into your life through God's Word, through the example of, a, of, of Scripture, through the example of a Christian life, and then you became a child of light. This, this hymn that closes, um, uh, verse number uh, 14, Awake, O Sleeper, this... Um, Historians believe this to be kind of a hymn that that early church sang because it's not verses from the Bible, although they are biblical sort of um, uh, concepts. But awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. This hymn that closes this passage summarizes in a poetic manner what happened to each of us who are followers of Christ now. What God wants to do through us is in this hymn. He wants to awake sleepers who are dead in their sin. And... He wants to transform them into light. I close with just a brief set of lyrics from a song that my son likes. It's um, uh, from from an artist, a hip hop artist named Lecrae. The, the song is "Children of the Light." We are children of the light, royal rulers of the day, saints, no prisoners of the night. Trust and love will lead the way. We are free. Let's bow together. Father, I believe this passage in very clear and inspired terms lays out for us who we are, how we are to live, and then the beautiful purpose the reason that you have saved us of, of reaching others by living lives of light. We are in a dark world. We, we still have sin in our lives. And we pray that you would, through your word, expose even the sin in our lives. But that you would, through our constantly being transformed lives, also expose to others their sinful deeds. And that in so doing, you would utilize us as part of the process of bringing sinners to repentance and calling a people for your glory, for your pleasure. We pray that in this study, in this message, that you would have something for each of us, that we would be reminded of your goodness, that we would be challenged to the standard to which you call us. We thank you for the struggles of sanctification and the pursuit of holiness. 
And we pray that we will emerge from the refiner's fire as pure and useful tools in your hand, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.